enough. Tonight, we're going to continue in John 19 in our Bible study through the Gospel of John. We're calling Undeniable. We've called it Undeniable for a little over a year now. Tonight's message, uh, once again, features um, a character study of somebody who had Jesus right in front of him, but just couldn't count the cost, couldn't make the decision that would have changed his life. Now, the title of the message is Caesar's Friend because we're talking about someone who wanted so badly to be Caesar's to be on the good side of the one that he thought controlled history, would define his own legacy. Of course, he realized it may be too late, but that wasn't the case. Uh, Caesar's friend, of course, is Pontius Pilate. Pilate, we were introduced to last week in our study of Jesus facing him on trial. Of course, as we learned last week, we really find that Pilate is the one on trial. Uh, Jesus may have been sent to him to be tried, but it's Pilate who finds himself in the position of being interviewed or being interrogated, uh, being examined by Jesus. Not that Jesus turns the table and cross-examines, but just the way Jesus manages himself and, and, and carries himself. Pilate quickly finds himself in the position of vulnerability, in the position where someone else has the power and is clearly making it known that they have the power. So I'd like to uh, reread a few verses that we read last time as we before we continue on in chapter 19. Let's begin in chapter 19, verse 1. Let's read down through verse number 7 as we uh, see Pilate uh, sent Jesus out, but he's going to bring him back in to make a final decision about the faith. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him or flogged him with a Roman cat of nine tails, a leather whip with all sorts of uh, glass and uh, nails, pieces of metal designed to rip the flesh off of somebody's back to take them to an inch of death and make them suffer as long as they could. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Remember, Jesus had been beaten by the Jewish authorities. He'd been beaten by the prison guards, now beaten by Pilate's men. Pilate then went out again and said to the Jews, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, and that you may know I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Can you imagine this coming out of the words of Jewish leader, religious leaders? Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate said, reveling in his power over them, You take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him, knowing they had no authority to kill him on their own. They needed him, and he loved it. But he didn't expect the Jews to say this. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Pilate had heard them bring a lot of accusations against Jesus, but this one was new. It's almost as if they saved this one for a last-ditch effort. And Pilate was not prepared to hear this come out of their mouth. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of Pilate's trial of Jesus, what began as a dismissive eye roll leads to an eyebrow raised at the things that Jesus was or wasn't saying. But at this point, he has two eyes wide open in shock. 
Pilate began by scoffing and asking the Jews, Who is this man? Why is he worth my time? Why are you wasting my time? He's just a peasant. He's a carpenter who says crazy things. He's not worth my time. Take him and do whatever you want to him yourself. But he's not worthy of death. I've killed people. I've crucified people. I've seen people worthy of death. This is just a delusional man. Let him go. But Pilate finds himself now thinking, what sort of man can this be? Where is he from? What is his power? Pilate thought at first Jesus was just delusional and crazy, but eventually he arrives at a place where he was convinced that Jesus was fearless and could not be a normal man. So Pilate wants out. He wants to get his hands clean and his conscience clear of this situation. He wants to wash his hands of this whole trial. Why the 180-degree turn? Well, at first, he found joy in watching the Jews grovel for his attention and cooperation. He took sadistic pleasure in flogging Jesus and mocking him with a crown and a robe because Jesus clearly wasn't a king. He had no power. He had no army. He would be fighting if he did. And to see this man, uh, you know, just suffer at his mercy, it made Pilate feel good. It was an ego stroke. And to see the Jews beg him for their help made him feel good. After all of that, he was ready and well to finish him off. But as he was stroking his ego, watching the Jews practically down on bended knee, begging for a death sentence, the Jews pull out a Hail Mary. I don't know if they would have called it a Hail Mary, right? But they pull out a last-ditch effort. And they say, we can't let this man remain alive. Yeah, I know we've said some things about the temple. You could care less about the temple. I know that we've said he's broken our law. You don't care about our law. But I bet you'll care about this. He claims to be the, underline, capital Z, the only son of God. This was language that maybe you aren't familiar with. But Pilate was all too familiar with this in his day. But not attributed to a Jewish peasant. You see, this was a title that had gained traction in Rome. If you would have been a citizen of the Roman Empire, you would have heard the Latin version of this all over the place. And i got to tell you a story to explain why this title, the son or a son of the gods, was something that the people in the ancient world had heard quite a bit. Julius Caesar, the last dictator of the Roman Republic, who took Rome to new heights, who uh, seized power during a time of crisis and set up the pieces for the empire to form upon his death. Julius Caesar was a man who was so charismatic and so uh, had a personality that just commanded people's respect. People fawned over him. They practically worshipped him until they actually did worship him. Julius Caesar was said to have possessed the power of the gods. He was greater than the emperors of Greece before him. He would lead Rome to becoming an unstoppable and the greatest of all kingdoms, past, present, or future. Julius Caesar had such an impact on history. We, of course, are still talking about him today. The Roman Empire that he set in place was the last of its kind in our world after years and years of empire after empire ruling the world Rome took over and did not soon let go 
Obviously, he expanded Rome's dominion far and wide. He forever changed the world. The things that we still lean on as part of our governments and our systems had their beginnings in the Roman Republic, in the Roman Empire. It changed the world. It changed government. It changed society. Even in his day, people knew that Julius Caesar was changing things and that things would never be the same on the earth. Uh, Again, he was charismatic. A cult of personality formed around him, and he became an object of worship, of course, the Roman, uh, the Roman people had many gods. The pantheon of Roman gods that existed alongside the Greek gods, same gods, different names. These, Greek, these gods had had fables and legends told about them for years and years. And it seemed as if the Roman Empire was the culmination of all the gods that had been working for and planning for and setting up on earth. The men and women they created, it seemed this was their destiny. A Roman Empire where the spirit of the gods dwelt in one man, Julius. Caesar. Some of the priests of Rome noticed all sorts of cosmic wonders that they studied the stars and all the things that were happening in the world. Uh, And near his death, they determined that Julius Caesar was indeed divine. Upon his death, the Roman senators, with nudging from the Roman priests, uh, gave proof that Julius Caesar was undeniably a God among men, a God-man. After his death on New Year's Day, 42 B.C., Julius was deified, as in the Senate met to uh, declare that Julius Caesar was a god. They just didn't realize it before it was too late. Julius Caesar was one of the Roman gods, and they lifted his name up alongside the likes of Jupiter, Zeus, and many of the other gods of the Greek and Roman religion. Coins were made and marked for generations to come in this fashion, with Julius Caesar on one side and the Latin phrase Divus Julian, the divine Julius, as in Julius Caesar, the God. Julius, of course, was succeeded by his adopted son, Augustus. Julius determined that his birth, his born son was not worthy of the title Roman Emperor, so he adopted his nephew, Augustus, to become the, his replacement, his heir, and the first official emperor of Rome. Reorganized the world, uh, he would reorganize the world in his own fashion, set up by his father to be unstoppable. Augustus Caesar establish an ironclad Roman government in order that would ensure peace on earth and goodwill toward all men. And for nearly 200 years, Augustus Caesar reigned in a time called the Pax Romana, peace of Rome, Roman peace that ended all the wars that had been fought for centuries between the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians and all the other kingdoms. Rome brought world peace, and everybody got in line because Augustus Caesar had a staff that exuded confidence and exuded power, and you did not cross him. Miracles and signs and wonders were attributed to Augustus' life and reign, and Roman propaganda began spreading the news far and wide that the rumors were true. Augustus Caesar, son of divine Julius, was a son of the gods. Posters, pamphlets, sermons were preached. Augustus Caesar is the son of the gods. Around 4 B.C., of course originally thought to be 0 B.C., but time kind of got edited through the years, 
Around 4 BC, Augustus Caesar famously decided that he would send everyone to their hometown to be taxed because he needed to take a census of all that he had accomplished in his short time as emperor of the world. Augustus Caesar famously brought uh, the whole world to its knees as everyone gathered in their hometown to give him glory and honor as the son of the gods. His successor, stepson Tiberius, would bear this title as well. Of course, Augustus Caesar would die around 14 AD. Tiberius became the emperor and would rule for the next 20 or so years. The Caesars were feared and worshipped as the Roman gods made flesh. Men like Pilate had their place in the world propped up by the Caesars. They owed everything to them. Whether they were gods or not, if you were in Rome and if you were in with Rome and good with the Caesars, you practically had all the divinity you could ever need. So Pilate didn't know whether Augustus was actually a god or not or if Tiberius was a god or not, but he knew they had all the power in the world, so he knew he needed to do what they say and follow in line with what they did and how they wanted because he knew with them he would always have what he needed, hopefully. Most of the world had accepted this as the will of the heavens, but the Jews, the Jews were not so quick to assimilate into Roman religion. Uh, all the other kingdoms of the world understood that Rome was in charge and that Rome's gods were greater than their gods, so they just went along with worshiping the Roman gods. And they would even attribute that Augustus Caesar and Tiberius after him were indeed the sons of the gods and that they gave them the honor, they worshiped them. The coins that had their image on them on the backside would say the son of the gods, the son of divine Julius. They just accepted that Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, all the Caesars were not just the kings, they were gods. The Jews were fussy. The Jews didn't like this. They had one god. His name was Yahweh. They were not about to worship Caesar as God or the sons of the gods. They held out on this outdated and overwhelmed religion on, in their long-forgotten god. And that's why this moment should have been so joyous for Pilate. Because now even they had seemingly wised up turning over someone who threatened the Caesars, putting their hopes in what Pilate and what Rome could do for them. But the joy that might have come over Pilate was quickly replaced with shock and fear when Pilate heard that statement. He makes himself the son of God, singular. This was jarring and alarming. Pilate. The cult of Caesar had men far and wide, and any potential threat would be handled in a minute. They heard everything, and they reported everything. And this was no small threat. Though things had went south in the last few days, Jesus had been known to entertain crowds of thousands. This could spell an end for the Pax Romana. If Rome got wind that someone claimed to be the son, not just a son, but the son of God, as if there was just one. If Rome got wind that someone was masquerading as an imposter of Caesar, Rome would send in an army, and if there were as many people on Jesus' side as it seemed, there would be an all-out war. Pilate didn't know what to do. Does he kill Jesus and risk riots? Does he kill Jesus and risk actually killing someone that might very well be divine? Or does he spare him and hope that his intentions weren't a threat to Rome and hope that he wouldn't lose his own place with the Romans and the Caesars? 
So Pilate was greatly afraid and was greatly shaken, which is why he, why verse number 8 says, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Maybe you've wondered, why was he so afraid of that statement? Now you know why he was so shaken up, why he was so jarred by this. So he goes back in to ask Jesus, where are you from? Notice he doesn't say, who are you? But he says, where are you from? Because now it became all too real for him. The man that he'd been speaking to, the man that had been blowing his mind with words that he could not comprehend, this man very well might be from somewhere beyond this earth. Pilate maybe had never had a one-on-one conversation with the Caesars, but here he was in front of this man that clearly had something inside of him that was not normal. Pilate couldn't shake it, but he couldn't deny it either. Where are you from, he asked, but Jesus gives no answer. Pilate said, are you not speaking to me? And this is when Pilate gets in his flesh and is about to lose it because he's so scared. So he attempts to seemed big and bad and in control, but he wasn't fooling Jesus. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? Do you not know I have the power to release you? And and again, I don't think Pilate actually, I don't think Pilate really thought he was scaring Jesus. I don't think he thought he could shake Jesus up. I just think this was a power grab for Pilate. It was Pilate's one last effort to try to seem like he was in control for his own men that were watching, but Jesus knew Pilate was trembling. Stoically, almost dismissively, Jesus answered, you could have no power against me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate can't comprehend what he's going through. Because Jesus looks him square in the eyes and he's with the fire of heaven inside of his pupils. Pilate knows he's not in the presence of a peasant, of a mere man. He's in the presence of God. So Pilate wants out. From that moment on, verse number 12, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate wanted out. He knew he had been used and wanted no part of it. He feared that he was actually hurting himself in the long run. Now, don't get me wrong. Pilate was not afraid of God, if he did believe or not. We don't know that he ever put faith in the Jewish God, doubtfully. He wasn't afraid of God. He was afraid of Rome. He was afraid of Caesar. But here's something I want to point out. Something that's traceable throughout this story. We've seen how Satan has used people to bring this fate upon Jesus. People that we would not have expected him to use. People that we maybe could have seen coming. But nonetheless, we've seen Satan use four prominent figures to make things as bad as it could be on Jesus. Judas, Peter, Caiaphas, the high priest, and now Pilate. I want you to notice something about three of these four. First, Judas. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Literally, the Greek word is there. He felt bad. I'm sure he did. hope he did. He felt bad. He changed his mind. He was remorseful. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders and said to them, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? 
I bet you can guess who wasn't remorseful in all this. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Or as if maybe go try to save him yourself. <laughs> Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went out and hanged himself. Of course, there also was Peter, Peter who denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And upon the third time, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him before the rooster crows tonight or today, you will deny me three times. And Peter's response to this overwhelming moment, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. So we see Judas and Peter used by Satan. And now Pilate. Pilate doesn't know he was used by the devil. He just knows at this point. He feels remorseful for what he's already done. I want to bring this attention to you. Satan is always recruiting people to help push his agenda forward. Now, he doesn't hold up a sign and say, hey, I'm the devil, would you work for me? He's more crafty than that. He's always recruiting people to push his agenda forward. But know this, once he's done with them, he will spit them, he will spit us out. He does not care about those he employs. We need to be wise to this because he seeks to and often uses us, 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 as well. How are we used? same way he used these guys. Betrayal, denial, plotting against, betraying God's people, betraying God's plan or God's word, denying his people, denying his will, plotting or trying to stop his advance or his cause. And we do this so subtly, don't we? Well, let me say this. None of these men, even Judas, if you look at it from a certain angle, None of these men went about their betrayal or denial or plotting maniacally or maliciously. They all did it to try to save themselves or get what they thought they wanted or deserved. As selfish as that might seem to us, they in the moment thought they were doing what they had to do. Because the devil always makes things sympathetic. We learn from this story however, that nothing can stop God's plans. And even a plan that seems to be against His cause can turn out in His favor. Because He ultimately is sovereign over all. That's what makes Pilate's place in the story seem that much more tragic. The Jewish leaders who turned Him over to Pilate, the ones that Jesus refers to, the ones that turned me over to you, committed the worst sin. Caiaphas and the high priest, or the high priest and his men, they aren't remorseful at all. Clearly spellbound by Satan, they set to wrongly condemn the only righteous one. Pilate is remorseful, yes, but the enemy knows what buttons to push to try to keep us from true repentance. And he does the same thing with Pilate. Again, Pilate says in verse 12, he seeks to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And we know how much you want to be Caesar's friend. Isn't it true, Pilate? Nothing means more to you than being on Caesar's side. Your job, your fame, your legacy depends on it. And here there are Jewish men who don't like Rome at all, suddenly advocating for Rome over one of their own because they need Pilate's help. 
Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Surely you know this, Pilate. Oh, Pilate knew it. This pressure was aimed at Pilate's responsibility to be a client of a good client of Caesar, a patron of Caesar's. So Pilate has to make a decision. Does he throw himself at the mercy of Jesus? The man that he just flogged and insulted? Or does he bow to Caesar like he's always bowed to Caesar? Which son of God does he trust? His time with Jesus had been short, but Pilate was convinced it was undeniable that Jesus was innocent. More than that, it was undeniable that Jesus was divine. Here's what Pilate, I, I know, had to observe. Whereas the Caesars gained and maintained their power through manipulation and threats, Jesus, who had no semblance of power, had the most confidence and security compared to anyone. Pilate noticed that, and it made him go crazy because he could not imagine being so secure and confident in the moment like this. He wasn't afraid of death. Pilate literally shook a Roman cross in his face, and Jesus didn't blink. This was otherworldly. Yet Pilate couldn't bring himself to let go of his power or the power behind him. It goes on in verse 13. Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brings Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So Pilate knows he's got to make this decision because they've already backed him in a corner. But he wants to make it clear this is their decision because he's their king. And even though Pilate might be signing the, signing the ticket and giving the okay, he wants to make sure the Jews know this is their choice because he knows he shouldn't do it. They cry out, away with him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they cut back at him. The chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. Oh, don't try to throw this on us, Pilate. You need him dead as much as we do because your standing with your boss depends on it. You see this back and forth? The priest emphasizing and stressing Pilate's subservience to Caesar. Pilate emphasizing their king and their choice. But Mark throws this nugget in there. Pilate wishing to satisfy and please the crowd. Willing to preserve his own place. He delivers him to be crucified. So he remains Caesar's friend instead of becoming God's friend. And yet Pilate seemingly would have would get the last word over Jesus. 16 says they delivered him to the be crucified so they took Jesus. I, I don't know about y'all but every time I read this story those three words are the most jarring and difficult to read. They took Jesus. Now you got to understand he was not able to walk at this point. He could crawl but barely walk. He's about to carry his own cross, but he's about to drag himself up this hill. He had been beaten, not once, not twice, but three times. 
No broken bones, but bruised, of course. Bleeding out a, 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 a fragile man at this point. Maybe not even much of a man left. The Scripture says, they took Jesus and they led him, to be, led him away, and he, bearing his own cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. Now notice this comes back to Pilate. And this was the writing, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Because it was their king after all. I wonder though. I wonder when Pilate was inscribing if he thought about writing the Son of God. Instead, he covered his tracks by letting history books show that he treated a threat to Rome and Caesar by putting him to death swiftly and without delay. Of course, we know the real story. He didn't do this swiftly or hastily at all. He mulled over it over and over, yet he ultimately came down on the side of Caesar instead of Christ. And from a purely secular vantage point, who could blame him? I mean, who would remember Jesus the Christ anyway? Wouldn't the Caesars be renowned forever? Fast forward 100, 200, 300 years, everyone would agree. Rome was forever, and the Caesars were forever. What good did this do, Pilate? Maybe you're wondering, how did Pilate fare in the aftermath of bowing to and kissing the ring of the Caesars. Well, you live by the Caesar, you die by the Caesar. A few years later, Tiberius questioned Pilate's leadership and had him removed without explanation. Perhaps in cruel irony, P Tiberius died before the trial date came, and Pilate was stuck in a Roman holding cell. Pilate was never reinstated to be Judah's, Judea's governor. He was left in Roman captivity for years, and eventually... He took his own life. Maybe he was still mulling over whether there was absolute truth or not. Maybe he was still wondering if he had made the right decision. But we'll never know. But you know what we do know? Pilate and even Caesar are just footnotes in the story of Jesus Christ. The one... They crucified. You know, John wrote this story around 90 A.D., long after Pilate was gone, long after there were any more Caesars, actually, even though Rome seemed large and in charge, the Caesar line had died out. John was still betting that in just a few more years, things would be much different. But i got to tell you this about John's story. John's story is full of people who unwittingly participated in God's redemption plan. Men like Judas and Caiaphas, Peter and Pilate and more, who did not realize they were contributing to a much larger story, even when they worked against it. Maybe you wonder why John tells us things like this in verse 23. 
Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top to one, in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? And John says, That the Scriptures might be fulfilled that say, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now the soldiers didn't know the Scripture. But John loved to tell us when people who were not aware of being a part of God's plan were actually fulfilling the Scriptures. Things like this serve no purpose but to cement our minds and make it very clear that God has a plan that even Caesar's friends couldn't, couldn't thwart, could not thwart, actually. How did John know this? Well, verse 25 and 26 tells us that there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John knew this because John was there the whole time. John's story underscores this one thing by highlighting how many participating, participated unknowingly. We've all been invited to join it and enjoy it willingly, though. From the very beginning, John was one of the first that when Jesus said, Come and you will see, he signed up and clearly he saw it all. Over the last year or so, we've come a long way and seen a lot of things in this book. The one thing's for sure, it's worth sticking around for every detail. As John testifies unto, the story of Jesus is always changing lives and shows us how every frame and angle fit into God's plan. All of us have a place in his story. We can either do it willingly or be part of it unwillingly. Think about what John was getting to witness. I wonder what he thought as he gazed upon that cross, maybe as he looked at the sign above Jesus' crown. How ironic that Pilate wrote on the sign in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, as if Jesus' story was that transcendent and that important. Of course, we know that indeed it is and has spread far and wide in more and more languages than just those three. So I guess if there's anything we can take away from this story, from this part of the story, take it from John, being a friend of God always pays off. Jesus blessed him and gave him a job to do, even from the cross. Caesar's friend may have forsaken Jesus, but his most beloved friend stuck around till the very end. Well, not the very end. There's still a little more to go. It's definitely not over yet. But I want you to consider one last thing. Pilate was so concerned, like Caiaphas and many others, Pilate was so concerned with prolonging his own reign and preserving his own name, yet they are mere footnotes. Yet John wouldn't even print his name in his own book out of humility. And it's John's name that is remembered far more than Pilate's or Caesar's. Because he befriended the name of names, the King of all kings, the one and only true and forever Son of God, who brought us peace and forgiveness and much more. 
So this begs the question over all of us. Are you, are we Caesar's friend or God's friend? Are we a friend of the world's or a friend of heaven's? Which hill to die on? I know it's not an easy question all the time. But if this snapshot doesn't convince you which side to take, maybe the next one will as we look at what happens on Calvary's Hill. But more on that next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for making it very clear which hill Jesus died on. The one that gave me and all the rest a chance to be in your story. Not unwillingly, not without awareness, but with the opportunity to say yes, to sign up, to be saved, to be accepted and included. Father, thank you for this story that is so real and so authentic. We see ourselves in Pilate so much because he had to make the most difficult decision he had ever faced. Which hill do I die on? Whose friend? Whose side do I take? Lord, obviously we know which side he took, but the question still remains for us, which side will we take? Whose side? Whose friend are we? Father, thank you for this testimony of how all these pieces fit into this amazing story of how Jesus went to die on a cross for people that didn't deserve it. And all these years later, we get to experience the bliss and the blessing of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews, son of the only God. We ask this in his name. Amen.